I would like to start out this evening with a short piece of poetry from T.S. Eliot that points to the mystery of tonight's exploration, which is the awakening factor of equanimity. Teach us to care and not to care. Teach us to sit still. This is from Ash Wednesday. Teach us to care and not to care. Teach us to sit still. Really captures something about equanimity and the role it plays in our practice and how it allows the heart's response and yet balances us from becoming fanatics or uh, losing all sense of the larger purpose, this role of equanimity. Equanimity is called upeka. It is one of the most subtle, sublime, satisfying, and mysterious mind states. Some people would say emotions. Some would say mental factors. So whatever word you would use, I'm referring it right now as mind states. I go back and forth myself. So it's subtle, it's sublime, it's very satisfying as an experience, as a felt experience, and there's something about it that's very mysterious. So in this, uh, this sense of it being satisfying, I'm referring to the felt experience of equanimity. I'm going to be uh, quoting various of the classic teachings. I'm going to be uh, using some of the lists like, uh, like Upandita uses. I'm going to have my own lists. <laughs> but all of those lists and all of that's not the important part of this. It is this felt sense of equanimity. Because that's how we're learning to practice. We're learning to have our own felt sense with each of these awakening factors. To become intimate with them to know how to be at ease with their absence and therefore cultivate their possible arising and then how to be with them at ease when they have arisen such that we don't grab hold of them or insist they stay around. There's a felt sense of of this practice of Dhamma in this way. It is taught that Equanimity is the culmination of the awakening factors, and we'll hear more about that. But the culmination that this whole sequencing of the awakening factors is building to this one. It's also understood by many teachers that everything up until now, being with the body, and all the different ways of being with the body, the dispassion that we were developing in relation to the body, and yet being able to stay present, being able to stay present for pleasant and unpleasant, being able to be with all the mind states, and now all the dhammas, including the the hindrances and the aggregates and, and the six sense doors, and now all the awakening factors are leading us to this last of the awakening factors in that way. It's this gradual development of the satipatthanas towards this empowerment. And then from here, that empowerment goes to the realization of the Four Noble Truths. And it's, of course, not 
all of this, all of this, all of this, all of this. But it's a gradual path so that we're going through the whole sequencing over and over again and getting, in an, for most of us, certainly for myself, uneven development of these of the seven awakening factors, uneven development in relation to understanding and, uh, and being able to incorporate awareness of pleasant and unpleasant and so forth. So that there's, uh, it's, it's, um, it's not a, I'm going to master this, then I'm going to master that. And it's, it's being present for, again, this felt sense of. Um, the, in Pali, this word upeka it comes from uh, two other words that have been linked together, which means to see as in uh, overlooking from a distance. So there's a sense of a little bit of removedness with equanimity. Not way, way back, but not caught. Uh, Gil Fransdell points to yet another Pali word that gets translated as, as, uh, as uh, equanimity. And again, that word means to stand in the middle of things, stay in balance, stay in centered, no matter what happens. It's the same idea that there's a centeredness, there's a balance. And this, this is kind of what we're learning about in this way. Being centered, being balanced, is not necessarily an absolute stillness. In relation to the uh, Nietzsche, in relation to the ever-changing objects of experience, there's a kind of back-and-forthness coming back to center. Being able to uh, surf the waves of the mind stream, it's often referred to. Now I think of it sometimes as like the skateboarders who can go around all these curves and go over these things and stay connected to the board or even leave the board and come back to the board, which blows my mind. But um, that sense of connectedness, even when not connected. Have, have you seen that with skateboarders, how they will do these huge jumps and actually leave the board and come back? We're doing that in our own little modest ways. <laughs> but some of our curves may be a little more challenging also. Uh, I studied uh, the martial art of Aikido for a uh, number of years till I uh, wiped out my knees. And uh, the, the Ushiba Sensei, the founder of Aikido, he was this small man who was amazing and his ability to throw these huge guys around the dojo. And even when he was really getting so old that he had to be helped up the stairs to his dojo, he, he still, once he was on the mat, suddenly he was in his center in this way. And uh, people would ask him, oh, oh, Sensei, how do you always stay centered? And he'd say, oh, I don't always stay centered, but I return back so fast that you don't see it. You don't see me get off and return. And as when we're in our equanimity with Vipassana practice, it can be like that for us, that or like the skateboarder leaving his board. We lose it and we come back. We lose it and we come back. Many levels of that. Even just staying with the breath. If you imagine that the that the breath is that the mind is your is is a is, is a dog on a leash in a busy street that you're going by a busy street you're walking your dog along a busy street, and you have it on a leash because it can't run into the road it'd get killed so you're holding on to the leash but the dog wanders here and there but you're always bringing the dog back, 
There's a kind of equanimity. We don't tighten up. We don't jerk the dog around. We just hold, we know what we're doing. We're holding a child's hand. It's the same thing. You hold that child's hand. You're not crushing the child's hand, but you can't let the child uh, be unattended. So that, uh, that attendedness has a kind of centeredness, even though that you're letting the child move or you're letting the dog play, but there's still this connectedness, this intent that's not lost, even though it would not appear uh, necessarily the same way to someone looking at it, as with the skateboarder, and, and as with those sensei, and so forth. Equanimity is a representative of an inner strength of mind. When we've got a lot of inner equanimity, there's a strength of mind that is present at that time. It's a kind of energetic vitality, but that doesn't mean that it's robust. It can be really kind of quiet, and it's not so. But but there's 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 a, there's a vitality that can handle uh, uh, all the things that come up, and and come back to it. So with when we're practicing vipassana, that the the kind of equanimity that's present there is the kind of uh, as it develops, it matures. It does not fall into reactive mind states very easily. So for it doesn't, it doesn't get caught in all the things that arises. It's able to stay unperturbed by perturbances, undisturbed by disturbances. In the concentration version of it, th- those disturbances don't arise because the mind is so sheltered. But in Vipassana, it, 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 it comes and goes so that we become more and more able to witness a moment of our soap opera without getting pulled away by it in that moment. Even if our fears or our vulnerabilities are present when we're doing the Vipassana, this equanimity is just able to be with it. There may not be a calmness of mind in that moment. So we're thrown off center, but we come back. We've thrown off center and we know being off center is like this. Being caught in my fear feels like this. There's this equanimity and the wisdom of that equanimity that allows us to know what it's like and this inclination, this natural movement back to center. Equanimity is a result of practice. It's a result of insight. It's, it's an uh, it's a result of all these different experiences. And it's also a skill that we develop. So it's both and, and, and not just one. When we are able to be with equanimity, there is a deep sense of letting go of being able to say, this too, this too. You can practice this tomorrow or right now. This too, this too. But you're not getting all over it. You're staying back in the knowing. This too, this too. Or if things of, oh, I want this or I don't want that, that, that uh, becoming and not becoming, not wanting to be. Nete, nete, not this, not me, not mine. The, the equanimity has this vitality, this strength that allows the, the, the wisdom you know, to, 
to blossom, to be active, the wisdom that and Andreas talked that she talked about uh, so beautifully. In um, uh, there's one sutta that's often uh, brought up in relation to uh, equanimity that I'm going to uh, read. Uh, I will make a little qualification at the end of it, but it's the the advice to Rahula, but in, it's in Majjhima, in which the Buddha is saying to his son, "Develop meditation that is like the earth, for the for the." Uh, uh, agreeable and disagreeable sensory impressions, sensory impressions will na- not take charge of your mind. So develop a meditation like the earth so that the sense impressions don't take charge of your mind. Just as when people throw what is clean and unclean on the earth, feces, urine, uh, uh, pus, blood, the earth is not horrified, humili- humiliated, or dis- disquieted by it. In the same way, Pleasant and unpleasant sense impressions will not take charge of your mind when you develop meditation like the earth. We spent so much time on being with the earth. This being with this earth, being with the earth element, there's a stillness, there's there's an equanimity. The earth isn't in a reactive state to what occurs to it. The reason I say a little qualification, um, in the Buddha's time, there was not the responsibility for taking care of the earth that we have now. So I can't ever say this, I can't ever uh, say this teaching without reminding us that in our time, one of the things we have to do because the earth does not do it for itself is it's our responsibility in our time, right now, to take care of the earth. Equanimity is not a detachment. It is, it, it, it is not indifference. When I say, that's the wrong word to use. It is, just to say equanimity is not indifference. You're not tuned out. You're not indifferent when, to the ever-changing uh, experience that you're having. This is um, from uh, T.S. Eliot, again, from the, this one from the three, four quartets. There are three conditions which often look alike yet differ completely, flourish in the same hedgerow, attachment to self and to things and to persons, detachment from self and from things and from persons, and growing between them indifference. Attachment, detachment, growing in between indifference. There are three conditions which often look alike, yet differ completely, flourish in the same hedgerow. Attachment to self and to things and to persons. Detachment from, from self and from things and from persons. And growing between them indifference, which resembles the others as death resembles life. Between, being between two lives, unflowering between the live and the dead nettle, nettles of flower. So this, uh, we're not, equanimity is not indifference. And the reason this matters is because so often, um, and uh, the, the kind of the bad rap about Buddhism and our, the kind of meditation we do and all, is that it's, uh, it is an indifferent. It is, it's not related anymore to life. 
But in fact, this is not, a, the equanimity is not a cold detachment. It is not unresponsive. But rather it awakens and enables love through the uh, other three Brahma Viharas, the expression of the love that all the other three Brahma Viharas represent, different kinds of love. Of metta, this unconditioned love, of the, the responsive love to suffering, this compassion, the karuna, and the responsive love of sympathetic joy. It is this equanimity that empowers, that allows that to flourish over time. And so, in one sense, if you want to grow to be a more loving person, cultivate equanimity. Cultivate equanimity. Rather than trying to be more caring directly, cultivate the equanimity that allows the natural caring that is there in the heart to respond, to flourish, to, to, to be there for the situation as it's arising. In the seven awakening factors, it is said that mindfulness and equanimity are the bookends. That they need each other that for, for mindfulness to really be effective, there has to be a strong presence of equanimity because so much of what we incur is so difficult. And at the same time, in order to have equanimity, we have to be mindful. And it's said that these two together empower the other five awakening factors. So one way to think about it is that in a mature mindfulness, there is this alertness to what's true now. We're being present for what's true now. But we also have the equanimity to fully receive the experience. We stay before we leave. Not a simple thing to do. Watch how many times in your practice tomorrow that, that you don't really receive the experience. You miss a good bit of the experience because of the pleasant unpleasantness and the reactive mind of that. The equanimity allows us to stay present, to fully receive the experience, to be present for the, 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 the embodiment of it, which includes the pleasant and unpleasant knowing of it, that registering. But more than that, just the feeling of embodiment, this, uh, this here now aliveness, that this is equanimity allows that. And in staying in that way, the mindfulness needs the equanimity in order for investigation to take place. So last night, Nikki talked about investigation. Without this equanimity, there's, there, it's, we get caught in our reactivity, our interpretations, our judging, comparing, or fixing mind. But with, with equanimity and the mindfulness uh, blossoms into, matures into investigation. And also, it is the, it is the um, uh, equanimity that allows us to stay present as to this seeing how we're relating to whatever's coming up. So that we can stay not just with that initial experience, but our, our experience of our experience, our attitude, as Andrea said the other day or other morning, that we can, the equanimity needs to be there so that we can, along with the mindfulness, that's the bookend, that we can see how, what is our attitude. And then finally, equanimity allows us to 
really know this experience directly because this is a practice of directly knowing the felt sense. This direct knowing, this intuitive knowing experience in order for insight to arise. And again, to do that, we have to be able to stay present in a way that we don't get swept away in identifying with it. So such a big role for equanimity. When we, when um, we're looking at equanimity and mindfulness and how they play out in our meditation and how they, uh, our formal meditation practice and how they play out in our interstitial time, our walking around time here on the retreat or our functioning in our daily lives at home, we can uh, see certain differences. So in formal practice, the the practice of equanimity is of two types. There's equanimity that's associated with ever-deepening absorption, ever-deepening absorption moving towards the jhanas, but any degree of absorption, that any degree, it doesn't even have to be towards jhana, but that, that sense that we're developing the equanimity that is associated with the stillness of mind. So we're with the breath and we're just with the breath and the mind's not moving anywhere. So we're not going into deep jhana, but right now what's present is this sense of stillness. This comes up at various lengths of time. So that equanimity is associated with stillness. Non-moving. The other kind of equanimity that we experience in our formal practice is the equanimity that's associated with the Nietzsche the ever-changing objects. So our mind gets still and, uh, and enough that we can be present somewhat and then we open to choiceless awareness. Or we're deliberately moving through the satipatthanas. We're focusing on one thing, then another. We're seeing the rising of pleasant and unpleasant and how quickly it's changing. So the, there's, a, there's an equanimity, but the equanimity is with the stream of mind moments, the stream of ever-changing objects. That's, uh, that's um, an important understanding because we can, uh, uh, without realizing it, start to think uh, equanimity only has to do with the stillness of mind. But, but in the awakening factors, they're primarily associated with this, this ever-changing reality when, when we are looking for this, uh, this realization. In the awakening factors, we go into a concentrated state, but that concentrated state then opens up to a kind of knowing, and the knowing is the Four Noble Truths in the end. Likewise, with mindfulness and equanimity, we have insight that is of a personal nature, it can be psychological or emotional insight in our lives. And we also have insight that are Dharma insights of, of Anicca, of, of understanding the Vedna, pleasant, unpleasant, uh, any of the, of understanding the presence of absence of the hindrances, Dharma, very impersonal nature. Both 
are valuable. We practice for liberation. So we're not practicing just to be healthier people, but, but, but as our mind becomes uh, more purified, it allows for the insights of, of the Buddha to arise. So there's not an either or to this, but it can be worthwhile to just notice kind of what we're doing. One reason it's worthwhile is sometimes you can have a personal insight about your history, the narrative of your life. And then if you stay with it and look closely and say, I wish to know this as Dhamma, you can have that same storyline be all about something different because you're no longer looking at it from a personal history, but rather from seeing, oh yes, that was, that was in the past and now it's here. I'm here in this moment, and that's just a memory. That's just a thought in the mind. That's a Dharma insight. And yet you may have had a real letting loose of something quite difficult in your past that was a very important personal, psychological, emotional insight. So the one, the, this, this can lead to the other. And likewise, as our Dharma insights develop and we gain more equanimity, that equanimity allows for further purification. And that's why you can be quite along in the retreat or been going to a number of retreats over a number of years and still have this huge personal insight that represents a kind of purification, a kind of letting go. So it's, it's um, again, just respect for the whole process, but not, not getting uh, really fixated on our personal insights or, but also not being uh, judging about, oh, I'm not having enough Dhamma insights. This mindfulness and equanimity together foster these other awakening factors that will lead to what's possible for us right now in our practice if we have this open view. For tonight, I'm focusing on the uh, uh, upeka as uh, this equanimity as part of the awakening factors. But equanimity is a key part of the four Brahma-viharas. And it plays a similar role in some ways in the Brahma-viharas as it does in the awakening factors. And I'm going to uh, take us through uh, how... uh, Equanimity supports all the awakening factors and how the other, all the other Brahma-viharas and how the other Brahma-viharas support the awakening factors. We don't usually talk this way, but one way to understand what's going on in our practice because of this personal development side, this personal purification, these personal understandings, and then these impersonal understandings that really help with the personal and the back and forth of those, is that there is a developmental aspect that we are developing, our mat- we are maturing in our mindfulness and maturing in our equanimity. And as we, as we develop mentally mature, our, our minds have a capability. We've developed this capability of our minds so that we can practice in this way. 
that that developmental is like uh, uh, it runs through both the personal and the impersonal insights that happen, and um, I have found it for myself and for many people that if we we realize, oh, this is developmental. There's a developmental thing here. My capacity is growing. And lots of times uh, there's a plateau in development. You know, you, you, if you're growing in height, you grow and then there's this plateau and then you grow again. Or your understanding of, of some uh, learning a foreign language or something, there's a burst of understanding, then there's a plateau, then another. And, and there's stages of development in anything we're learning. This ability to be with the moment and be able to choose non-suffering over suffering is developmental in my view. So it's, it's not just about, it's not episodic alone because we have a lot of episodic moments or we, you know, we've, around some personal experience we've had or around like, well, now I understand Vedna and I never had understood Vedna. Now I get how it's affecting everything. Those are, those are episodic development, those are episodic events of uh, understanding, but they're part of this whole development that's occurring. And uh, that can be very reassuring, very heartening to, to us, you know, because we, we're looking for the next big thing or the next insight. No, we're, it's this, this path of development, this eightfold path. It's a path of development. We're just developing. And, and each of us is developing based on circumstances and conditions and our, our, our karma, our past conditions, as is possible for us. So just trusting that development, trusting our intention to be part of that in that way. Yesterday afternoon, I attended a Spirit Rock board meeting. It was a very important board meeting. We were doing some really um, needed and uh, crucial work. It was a, a many hours long, this board meeting. And when I got there, I discovered that I had fallen into the retreat. That I was really like a yogi going to a meeting. <laughs> I had so much equanimity that things would come up and ordinarily I would have said something and a couple of times uh, the leaders kind of looked at me like, come on, Philip. <laughs> and I, I sort of knew what to say in all of this, but there, there just wasn't that much interest <laughs> in participating. <laughs> and so today... Uh, uh, someone asked me, one of the leaders asked me, Philip, were you okay yesterday? And I had to explain this whole thing about that. And uh, I thought, well, that, that having gone through that, I never really fully got into the meeting, but I thought that that will, uh, that will disturb having dropped into the retreat. But this morning, walking over to do my practice uh, sessions with some of you, I knew I needed to walk at a certain speed, but I really didn't have that much interest in walking at the speed to get me there. I was much more interested in the felt sense of this step and that step. <laughs> felt good to me. <laughs> so why would I want to do otherwise from within it? That's a certain degree of equanimity. 
of dropped in. There was equanimity. That was there was there was a there was a kind of of being present in the moment. There was lots of changing things, but I had I had gotten in the rhythm of all of us. I was part of all of us in that way. So uh, beware of thinking that equanimity looks like a certain thing. It, it looks as it looks. It manifests in different situations in different ways. It, that you can be uh, moving around, there can be ever-changing objects, and yet that presence of stillness. In my own uh, retreats, I, um, I would uh, feel this condition arise and know it was there. And like with many of you, you've, ha- you've reported about these beautiful experiences you've had with nature around the turkeys or the sky or this, just many different ones. I'm not naming specific ones because I didn't have permission to do so but many different ones. So it is with me on retreat. I will, when I get to a certain point of this, of this equanimity, I can step into nature and nature receives me as part. I never had this experience before, this kind of meditation. I literally can step in and the birds and the squirrels and every, every creature acts like I'm just part of them. They, they're not, they don't do, any, there's no reactivity at all. And I can actually even feel the energetic quality of nature in a different way, much more like I think that the, the energy would be there for animals. And I so treasure this. One of the reasons I'm saying this is that you may have equanimity and not noticing it. So cultivating the noticing, even if it's a few moments of equanimity. Oh, this feels like equanimity. There's a kind of, of just being present with the, the objects. The mind is not being thrown off. I have a balance, even though it may be rapid change or something uncomfortable, but it may be just a bunch of changing objects. And you're there with it and you're thinking, well, there's not much going on, but you're not noticing. Whoa, there's this equanimity here. One time when I was feeling this, I, I was doing my go out into the woods in the afternoon to meditate, which was is, is remains a big favorite of mine. I like to isolate myself and sit in nature for uh, two or three hours in a session. And I, when I go out like that, I'm careful. I was, so in this particular time, I was on this area of land that's owned by the Audubon Society. And I, I got to this a place where there was a rock that was looked like a good rock to sit on. So I'm standing there because I look over carefully before I sit down because of snakes. And so, you know, when you're out in the woods like this, um, you, you never know what you're going to encounter. So that's the mindfulness, right? So I'm standing there just looking at my rock and out of nowhere comes first like six, eight snakes black and yellow snakes, and then another four or five or six, and then another and then another, till there's 20-some snakes right at my feet and on my shoes and all. And they're curling around each other and all this. And I'm watching all of this like a good yogi, right? Being mindful. And there's so much equanimity that fear of something like this doesn't arise. At one point I'm thinking, I'm glad these are friendly snakes. But it was with such awe to be included in part of whatever that was. They were about this long. 
They weren't, I mean, if they look, I know rattlesnakes and all this sort of thing. I'm very alert to those. But I, I, it, was, it was such a pleasure. That was equanimity in that way, to just be with that. And then another time, uh, again, walking with this equanimity along a road during the hunting season, which they're saying, you know, don't go out where the hunters are, but my favorite place to sit you have to go through that. So there I was doing that, which is not wise. I don't recommend it. Don't use me as a model. And as I was walking back towards the center, I could hear the rifle shots, you know, and the shot, whatever those, I don't know, rifles and shotguns and all that very well. But I could hear this. And out of nowhere came a, a, a flock of turkeys like here. And some got in front of me, some behind me, and some were on each side of me. There were eight or ten of them. And I'm going, oh, this is so sweet. Oh, it's so sweet. Now, you know, they're, they're, here I am in my equanimity, and these turkeys are feeling that and being with me. And then I kept hearing those, those you know, gunshots. And I said, wait a minute, who's the turkey here? <laughs> these turkeys are here for their own safety. But then who is the standing up one who's easiest to target to be shot? So there is a limit to this. <laughs> There's a limit to how much we want to go when we've got this kind of equanimity. We don't want to give up our wisdom. <laughs> it is said that Upeka is, is perfect, is a perfect, unshakable balance of mind, and that it's rooted in insight. This is the full maturation. Again, don't get into some idealization that you keep striving for, some concept, some idea you create. Perfect, unshakable balance of mind. It's balanced. It can balance in a still point or it can balance over a, a, a whole wave of experience. And it is, uh, it is balances the mind that usually moves in contrast between the eight worldly winds of praise and blame, gain and loss, and so forth. And it is, a, it is, it is it's, its own kind of joy. It's a joy that's not based on the conditions that it's encountering. Isn't that beautiful? Its own kind of joy. The joy of equanimity. And it's said that it comes from a, a, a vigilance of, of presence of mind that strengthens this equanimity from within. And that, it, that equanimity uh, it comes in part from understanding the insight of karma. You'll hear more about this when we get to the, uh, the uh, equanimity practices. But that karma, that this is this way, but it's lawful it's this way. And we don't, we don't get into the reactive, the judging, comparing mind in, in ways that are not as skillful. So in relation to how, uh, uh, how the other three uh, Brahma-Viharas support equanimity, it's said that metta or love imparts a selflessness to equanimity that allows for this, this uh, boundless uh, caring, this boundless fervor to stay present. Because the, the caring, we, it doesn't, it's the metta that brings it away from indifference, to, from this not, this, in, this not caring. It's the difference between indifference and non-attachment. So it brings it away from that indifference. And compassion guards equanimity 
from the indifference because equanimity equanimity alone might register, as we were talking about in the compassion practice, that, that with the mindfulness and the equanimity you might recognize the suffering, but it's that compassion, the presence of compassion, that brings the uh, heart's tremor that's associated. And it's said that sympathetic joy gives equanimity a mild serenity that softens what can seem like the sternness of equanimity. It's kind of stern, it's kind of you know, but it's, it softens it. There's a happiness to this that, uh, and that uh, I associate uh, equanimity with such well-being, and that well-being then turns right around and supports the the other three coming back the other way. It guides equanimity is said to guide and restrain the power of the other three. So equanimity guards metta and karuna from getting uh, overly involved in a way that's pointless, that's not actually helping anything, but it's that kind of pity and so forth that we talked about. And that equanimity is, uh, does not allow sympathetic joy to just stop there, but it takes our minds on. It's not just being, oh, I'm happy over all these things, uh, these other people's happiness, but it moves us on in our path that we don't get caught in pursuing sympathetic joy as an end in itself. And that equanimity uh, uh, gives uh, this metta and a, an, an unchanging firmness and loyalty and a kind of patience because a love, this metta can get frustrated you know how it is when you're having this loving kindness towards someone and they're doing all these annoying things in your home life or you're having metta towards someone and then you think about things, you know, the dear one who's got some, uh, there's some other issues with the dear one. You see about that. So equanimity is what allows us to practice through that. It is said that equanimity is the crowning achievement of the all the Brahma Viharas. It is said that uh, equanimity is not an emptiness but actually a fullness. And it's full with incomplete within itself. So therefore what equanimity needs in the way of of core nourishment is equanimity. So one moment of equanimity leads to another moment of equanimity. Uh, this is there's a whole subtle teaching about that that uh, I would love to sometime be in a situation to go into about how these really sublime states uh, are nourished on that sublime level and one of these things is this ability of of equanimity to just be rest on itself and get nourished by itself and if you, if you're carefully watching you can actually feel the nourishment it's like food in your body. You can feel the nourishment of food. You can feel the nourishment of this. At least that's my experience. When we, um, when we uh, uh, think about uh, developing equanimity, developing this strengthening equanimity, treating it not as the end result, which is one aspect of it, but also is this development process. This Again, that word development, please hear it. 
that uh, that we're able to uh, uh, we're able to bring our wise attention to it, and. Uh, this Upandita says is the number one way to develop equanimity is through this wise attention to have this intending to develop equanimity, this this uh, making it a, a key intention. And uh, he too stresses this that one moment of equanimity creates the seed for the next moment of equanimity and talks about how it's visible. And then he has five suggestions for fostering equanimity that I'm going to quickly go through. One is that we have we cultivate a balanced emotional attitude towards all beings, all living beings. That's number one. Don't have to hold on to these. It's just the felt sense of all this. Two, that we have a balanced emotions towards inanimate objects, our stuff, and other people's stuff, and just stuff in general, whether it's you know our home, or whether it's our clothes, or jewelry, or... Uh, uh, any kind of an ability that we have, uh, we have, uh, we we cultivate this kind of not indifference but detachment to these things. Even as we're taking care of them, even as we're growing them, we're developing this this balanced emotion towards them. We respond what's skillfully, what's appropriate, but we don't cling. And then he has this phrase of avoiding people who go crazy. <laughs> And by crazy, he means uh, being possessive in nature, having, having, uh, being inflexible, inflexible because they're so attached to something. They're so clinging to something. They can't put it down. You can't, you can't point anything out to them. You can't, you're just stuck with them and their attachment in a way that then you start getting attached. That it starts rubbing off on us. So you can find this with people who are really driven, that if, at least I find this, if I'm around people who are really driven, I start thinking that way. It sort of creeps into this little attitude like, oh, well, what am I trying to achieve? What do I want? And, and so that's this avoiding those kind of people. And then his fourth is choosing friends who, quote, stay cool. And we all want cool friends, right? <laughs> so meaning friends who don't get caught in attachment and and who who don't get obsessed and got that, and you know the franticness of of that grabbing mind, right? We all know that, and that sense of there's a there's a kind of like something's got to happen here, something's got to happen next, and it kind of feeds on itself, just like equanimity will feed on itself. And then his fifth one is that we incline the mind to balance. So we incline the mind towards balance, and to take a moment here. Uh, to uh, to explain how I would understand this inclining, because um, uh, I haven't so much in this retreat because of the way we're doing the retreat, but I often take time to have us explore this idea of inclining the mind. It is so slight; it's just the slight turning. It's just very slight. It's not a pushing. It's, it's this is the inclining is not that. Sometimes there's will used. You're staying like with the child. You got to hold on to the child's hand walking down the busy street, or this puppy dog walking down the busy street. You have to be firm. The inclining of the mind, soft, gentle. It's barely perceptible, and yet it's a slight inclining in this way. And it uh, what helps that is uh, the, the inspiration of the wholesomeness of what you're inclining the mind towards. If you, if you reflect for a moment 
on what, like, why are you inclining this mind? How the wholesome, the goodness of it, that can really help. Or maybe sometimes it's a symbol, some sort of symbol, or, or it can be the Buddha, or it can be a, a, a teacher you admire, or just some, some, uh, something from what we're chanting at night, just a single phrase. And just that little thing, and just this little just little movement. It's very gentle because it, what we're, the mind is not like being jerked around. So when we're with the mind and we just slightly move, it is really responsive. You could call it, those of you who are martial artists and know Aikido, you could call it a blending with the mind. And that's how you incline it. So, um, other things that I would suggest that, uh, that will support your equanimity practice. Again, this list is to stimulate for the felt sense of this, not to be held on to. The bliss of blamelessness. You know, there's opportunities here to feel relatively blameless. Isn't that great? So, you can think, you can think in midday, have I did anything that was that unskillful today? At the, end of the, uh, at the end of tea, you know, you're sitting here in that, the sit before the talk. Has, has this been a relatively blameless day? Not all of your self-judgment and all of that. We can all fall into our self-judging. But we've not caused harm to ourselves or another. There is an energetic sense of this bliss of blameless. It's really truly a bliss. I remember one Sunday evening I, I, I had a Sunday sangha that I taught every Sunday for a long time and I was sitting there at the beginning of class one time and I was going, I really feel good. What is this? Why do I feel so good? And I realized that there was nothing in my mind that I was unsettled over in relation to my speech or my actions. And it was, it was a sweet feeling. But we have to recognize this. So that, 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 that feeling of, oh, you know, I'm just being a yogi on retreat in this way, that can help with that equanimity. Uh, uh, going along with Upandita and his uh, the wise attention, this clarity and commitment to intention. Likewise, that being truthful with ourselves. If we can stand being truthful with ourself, there's not this tension in the mind. Ah, that was really unskillful. Well, I got caught away in that. Boy, did I indulge myself in that fantasy. We, we're not denying it. We're not rationalizing it. We're being with it as it is in this way. Having a kind of uh, compassion to ourself, this compassion, I've talked about compassionate mindfulness, that, that, that compassion shields uh, us from this comparing and judging in a way that allows this equanimity to develop. Likewise, the humility and the dignity. As best I am able, that's the humility. Don't know mind. As best I am able, I'm doing this. And the dignity of that. There's equanimity in that because we're not resulting. We're not over on the result. We're back here in the intention of this moment. So powerful, that combination of the humility that knows itself and has this kind of dignity because it is organized around as best I am able. That we can do. Not always, but most of the time, some of the time. 
that we can do. And so that's really feeling the, the power of that in terms of bringing equanimity. It allows us to uh, go with ever-changing objects of experience because we're just staying with it as best we're able. When we get off, we start over. When we're off and we're really off, we start where we are and make our way back. It's the truth of things. It's as best we're able to do. And then last of these things I would mention is this innate sense of well-being that comes from letting go to really just being in the moment. It is an innate sense of well-being. Equanimity, again, this is not appropriate here, but equanimity is connected to a lot of uh, deep states of awareness. And um, we discover that over time in our practice. And so this allows us, this, um, this letting go that involved in equanimity, just being with it as is. Letting go that it has to be other than it is. Letting go of how we wish it were that we, that we learn to stay. This is from the Venerable Sumedho. The practice of letting go is very effective for minds obsessed by compulsive thinking. You simplify your meditation practice down to just two words, let go. Rather than try to develop this practice and then develop that and achieve this and go into that and understand this and read the suttas and study the Abhidhamma and then learn this, Pali and Sanskrit, then Madhyamakaya and then the Prajnaparamita, get ordination, the Hinayana and Mahayana and Vajrayana, write books and become a world-renowned authority on Buddhism. Instead of becoming the world's expert on Buddhism and being invited to great international Buddhist conferences, just let go. <laughs> let go. Let go. This letting go moves us towards equanimity. He goes on, I did nothing but this for about two years. Every time I tried to understand or figure things out, I'd say, let go, let go, until the desire would fade out. And when he says this, he means it. If he says he did this for almost two years, that was his practice, that was his practice. He has awesome practice. I did nothing but this for about two years. Every time I tried to understand or figure things out, I'd say, let go. Let go until the desire would fade out. So I'm making it very simple for you to save you from getting caught in incredible amounts of suffering. There's nothing more sorrowful than having to attend international Buddhist conferences. <laughs> just now, just here, letting go, the equanimity that's present, being available to the equanimity that we've built all of these days. It's just here. And my story about the board meeting, it was there and it just caught me by surprise. Maybe tonight it will catch you by surprise if you let go so that you're available to know the amount of equanimity that's present. So let's just sit in letting go for a moment. Notice the presence of equanimity, small or large or absent, 
the felt sense of it, be aware of the felt sense of it. This is equanimity. Thank you for your attention this evening. If any of you are so inclined, um, staying for a few minutes now, if you're not coming back for the last sit, you might stay and experience, or just explore right now a little bit of equanimity. Or you might come back after the last sit, or in that last sit, if those of you are coming for the, the chanting in the last sit, you might explore the presence of equanimity. And tomorrow morning when we're all sitting here together, you might just consider inclining the mind slightly towards equanimity. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.